not from Chicago just to hear that. Uh, John Rutter's arrangement of Henry Purcell, one of the best settings of that amazing Trinitarian hymn, Nicaea Brass, under the direction of Colin Howland, with a little bit extra from Carol Wynn singing in the choir this morning, the amazing pastoral staff of 10th Church. We've got Liam Gallagher in the nursery this morning, (laughs) all of which is made possible by the fact that I'm preaching. So uh, it's good to be home. This, This will always be home for Lisa, for me, for our children. I first came to 10th Presbyterian Church in the spring of 1995, slipped into a service with Joe Winston, sat over here. Uh, I knew right away not only I would be at home here, but also Lisa Maxwell Riken would be at home here. Uh, First time we came as a family, I carried Josh Riken on my shoulders. He's 6'5 now, and he has his own little baby to carry into church, so that was a generation ago. Great to be here. Um, Great to see in this congregation people I know and love, tears we've shed together, laughter we've shared. Uh, There are people here this morning that I've married, baptized, and just as good to see people here I don't even know uh, because of the ongoing work of God the Holy Spirit through the kingdom witness of 10th Presbyterian Church. And I do think on a morning like this as well of those who have departed uh, because I've buried people in this church as well. And uh, praise God for their, for their memories. Have a little pity on us this morning. Um, we've been gone 11 and a half years. I have welcomed and graduated some 10,000 students at Wheaton College and tried to get to know as many of them. I may not remember your name this morning. I know this because last time I was here, um, I greeted somebody and I said, you're going to have to rem- remind me and there was just this look of horror in his eyes, like, how could you not remember me because you've known me since I was two years old, which he had a point, but I pointed out to him that he didn't have a full beard when he was two years old either. So uh, we are here for the worship of God. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 108. I'll read, uh, I'll read this passage in a moment, but let me just ease into it this way. You know, uh, some people, maybe you've noticed this, are morning people and other people aren't. I can prove this pretty much any day of the week in my kitchen in the interactions we have there. I think it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. I'm not sure who was the morning person and who wasn't, but it was probably one of each, don't you think? Well, the warrior who wrote Psalm 108, absolutely was a morning person. Uh, By the way, forever's on sound. I think it's just a little hot. Um, I say that uh, because of the way that he is up before the first light of dawn to summon a string ensemble and to sing a psalm that would strengthen his heart for battle. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 108 the warrior's morning psalm. And whether it was David himself or someone who came along later, and we'll get into that, somebody who wrote new music for David's old lyrics, this psalmist began his day by praising God. And there was a good reason for it. Because as the new day dawned, this warrior knew he was going to need all the help that he could get. Given the strength of his foes, 
Given some of the defeats that he had suffered, who knows what perils he might have to face that very day. And although he begins with wholehearted praise, by the time he gets to the end of his psalm, he will have uttered some pretty desperate pleas for deliverance. Maybe the kinds of desperate pleas for deliverance you've prayed from time to time. But he will also have summoned his heart to courage and reassured himself with strong assurance that God would give him a famous victory. Here's how the psalm goes. Mentioned for us as a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Now I believe that this Psalm 108 teaches us how to use psalm singing as a daily weapon of the Holy Spirit in all of our spiritual battles. And given the challenges we face in this fallen world, all the trials, all the temptations at home, at school, at work, in society, we are going to need a warrior psalm as much as David did. And Psalm 108 can help us from the very break of day by giving voice to our early praise and preparing us to be valiant in the victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the first things to know about this psalm is is that it is actually a mashup of stanzas from two other songs. Uh, You know, sometimes the Bible scholars worry about this sort of thing, seeing something repeated in a different context. Nobody that knows anything about music would worry about it because sometimes you put together some things in a way that creates a really great new work of art. And here the author deployed lines from two different Psalms of David, Psalm 57 
and Psalm 60, you can look it up, to compose a new lyric. The first five verses come from Psalm 57. The last um, eight verses come from Psalm 60. 57 is a personal praise psalm. 60 is more of a national lament. I think you put it all together and you have, as I'm calling it this morning, the same new song. The same, because we have read and sung these lyrics before, almost identical. But it's new because they're recombined to make a new work in a new context, something that has fresh meaning. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory before we get into the psalm. David wrote Psalm 57 when King Saul was hunting him down and he had fled to the cave at Adullam and he was finding, he was fleeing for his very life and yet finding refuge in the mercy of God. And despite that desperate situation, by the end of the psalm, he was praising God for his love and faithfulness. The situation David faced in Psalm 60 was maybe even tougher. His his armies were in the north fighting against the Syrians. They had been attacked by the Edomites from the south, and although later they were able to get their revenge, in this psalm, Psalm 60, David is lamenting a terrible defeat that his nation had suffered. It seemed like God had not even gone with them into battle. He cries out for God's deliverance. Here in Psalm 108, the psalmist, probably coming along later, takes those two psalms and claims them as his own. One, one commentator points out something that I think is true. If you're in an emergency, two hymns are better than one. So he claims both of them. And in each case, interestingly, he reuses the end of the psalm, the kind of landing point that David reached, and he puts those two ends together, the parts where the psalmist is very confident and has reached a, a, a settled place of ultimate victory. Another recent commentary commentator says he's not just recycling, he's actually upcycling, taking those maybe discarded parts and putting them to a new and maybe even better use. The context for the Psalm 108 matters too, not just its backstory, but actually its more contemporary context. We're in Psalm 108. If you turn back just to Psalm 107, you'll see at the top of that, it says book five. This is the last of five parts of the Psalter. And these are the Psalms, by and large, which were written or assembled after Israel had returned from its exile. If you know the big story of the Old Testament, you know this is one of the big events. The people of God had sinned. They had been taken into captivity in Babylon, the most powerful nation in the ancient world. They had been there for 70 years. Then they had come back to Jerusalem, and it was a, a homecoming, but it was, it was pretty tough because they faced a lot of opposition then as well. They had lots of enemies that were trying to prevent them from rebuilding the city. And so this author-editor of Psalm 108 saw in those earlier psalms something relevant and something that came to have new meaning in its current context. And I, I think in a way the psalms always do that for us. Maybe you have some particular favorite psalms. There was a, a psalm that just, it said it expressed your sufferings even better than you could express them yourself. There was another psalm. You were in a very difficult time, and it, it spoke to you, words of comfort 
and assurance. You've always loved that psalm since then. And when you read the psalm again, you think back to that time and what God did in your life in that time. There is a sense in which the psalms can always become for us the same new songs because more prayers are answered. New victories are won. We have fresh reasons to give praise to God. And we add to our praise this morning and maybe the rest of this week as we meditate on Psalm 108 and maybe the impact it can have in our lives in this season of life. All of that is the backstory. Now let's take a closer look at the psalm. And let's do so in two parts. First, the praise song in verses 1 through 5. Then the petitions and in a way the promises in verses 6 through 13. The praise perspective is there from the very opening words. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will make melody with all my being. If you were to read Psalm 57, that would be the conclusion. It's kind of the point that the psalmist is able to work his way around to and up to. And sometimes life is like that. You don't start at that place of praise. You need a little encouragement to get to the place of praise. But there is also a place in the Christian life, as there is in the Psalms, for starting from that point of praise. This is the beginning point, who God is and the praise that I want to give him. And so David's past experience of deliverance brings a strongly positive perspective to the start of a new day. And whether you happen to be a morning person or not, this is a good place to begin, whatever the day may bring. Here the psalmist tells us his heart is steadfast. If you know your English Bible and the Hebrew backgrounds really well, you might immediately think, oh, uh, steadfast. This is referring to God's covenant faithfulness. It's that kind of steadfast love. Actually, we'll get to that, and that's in the psalm, but that's not the term here. This is more just a steady disposition. There's a stability to the psalmist's life. He is, he is always prepared for what's about to come. He's a kind of eagle scout here. And by the time you get to verse 4, you'll understand the reason for it. He's steadfast because God is steadfast and has steadfast love. And that is the covenant, faithful love of God that we read about so often in the Old Testament. The psalmist is steadfast because his God is steadfast. Now, what may seem surprising, especially, frankly, for those of us who are not mourning people, is that the psalmist is already at this place of peaceful preparedness and heartfelt praise from the very first moment of the day. In fact, what he tries to do here is interesting. The psalmist personifies his instruments kind of like um, maybe a sleeping-in teenager that needs to be roused from bed. That, maybe that doesn't happen in your house at It it has at our house, I'll just say. And here the instruments are like that. He needs to wake up the instruments so that the instruments in turn can wake up the sunshine. That's how early the psalmist is up to give praise to God. He wants to worship God all day, every day, with all his being. I look at the promptitude of the psalmist's praise and I have to admire him. Because that's not always the place where I am. 
Here's a psalm that can help rouse our sluggish hearts. Many of us, compared to David, are pretty slow to give God the glory he deserves. Given everything he's done for us, we have every reason to wake up with a song in our souls. Even if that's not where we are, even now at 11.51 a.m., it's where we can be by the grace of God, holding nothing back. There is, by the presence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, an opportunity to begin each new day with songs of grateful praise. And then one other thing about the instruments here, which I think is significant. If you know your Old Testament history really well, and if you know the Psalter really well, you know that when the Israelites were in Babylon, they set some of their instruments aside. Psalm 137 describes them hanging their lyres on the willow trees by the waters of Babylon because they, they were under such distress, they, they really could hardly bring themselves, to pray, bring themselves to praise. But when they came back to Jerusalem, here in Psalm 108, a new day is dawning. It is time at the beginning of the day to get out those instruments again and play their strings. I think there are times for all of us when it is hard to worship, not just certain times of day, like first thing in the morning, but whole seasons of life. Sometimes we don't feel very much like singing a psalm of praise, maybe because of life's painful sorrows, maybe just our spiritual drowsiness. The Holy Spirit wants to use Psalm 108 to wake us up, to tune our hearts to the praise of God, to give us that gracious influence to sing again as soon as we can and to make melody with all our hearts. I hope as you read this psalm and see the example of David, you want to wake up tomorrow with a song of praise from the beginning of your day. Now the Holy Spirit does something more than just encourage us to praise. The Holy Spirit gives us a reason to praise by reminding us who God is and what God has done. You see that everywhere in the Psalms, all kinds of commands to praise, to sing, to worship, but never without a good reason to do that in the character and in the actions of God, his promises made and his promises kept. In Psalm 108, no exception. The psalmist begins with praise in verses 1 and 2 and then gives us some reasons based in God's character in in verses 3 through 5. His work among the nations, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his glory, the, the beauty of who he is. And the psalmist has a very expansive view of this because he sees it in an international perspective. This is a very national psalm in one sense, and we'll get to that when we look at the geography in the second half of the psalm. But the psalmist wants to praise God for what he is doing in the wider world. And remember again the context. David, first writing these words, praising God for victory over the Philistines. The Israelites, using these words again, the same new song, after the exile, praising God for rescuing them from Babylon, the mightiest nation in the world, and repatriating them to their homeland. It was a massive national deliverance. The psalmist saw that, saw the gift of the land returning to the people of God. He saw the strongest nation in the world submitting to the sovereignty of God, and he just had to sing about it. 
And here he praises God for his loving, steadfast faithfulness. A God who doesn't change, who doesn't, even with the change in our circumstances, change his character or his, his attitude towards us, so constant in his affection, so committed to keeping his promises that you can absolutely count on him in every situation in life. This God ruling over the nations is more than able to save us. And when he does that, when, when we see his work in our lives, in the church, in the world, it's, it's news that deserves a kind of global praise. It's one of the reasons it's so important for 10th Presbyterian Church, and it's been true almost from the very beginning, to have a connection with world missions. In fact, I, I don't mind saying it publicly, Lisa Riken, by the way, is still a member of 10th Presbyterian Church, tunes in almost every uh, Sunday. We sometimes try to figure out from the back of your head who's sitting where. Uh, but we continue to give financially to the uh, missions budget of 10th Presbyterian Church and stay connected to those missionaries that we've known for a quarter, quarter century. You're connected if you're part of this church to what God is doing in the world, and you're able to enter into this kind of praise in Psalm 108. The psalmist reaches out in his psalm to encompass the nations and then elevates from there not just thinking horizontally about what God is doing in the world, but vertically to the very throne room of heaven. Notice notice what he says in verse 4, how exalted it is. God's love is great above the heavens. It's faithfulness that reaches all the way to the clouds. It's not just in the world that God is doing his work. It is God is to be praised from sea to sky, not that God could be any more exalted than he is. He already sits in that preeminent position where he rules over earth and heaven. What the psalmist is trying to do here is to get his praise and get our praise as high as it can go, to take it from where it is and elevate it still higher to the throne of God in heaven, to give him the fullness of the praise that he deserves. We sing this psalm today or even just as we read it, we are praising God for his saving work around the world and with hopefully even more heartfelt than David was because we have seen what Jesus Christ has done through the cross and through the empty tomb, the way he is bringing people from every tribe, every people, every nation. Just look around you in this sanctuary. And so when we give God thanks among the peoples and sing his praises among the nations, we're not just singing about something we have, but other people don't. We're joining with brothers and sisters from all over the world. All the nations will praise him. That's the perspective of the psalmist. Now, all of that to me is so exciting and so revealing for how we should think about our place in the world, particularly with the advance of the gospel all over the world today. But you know, it takes an even greater significance and seems to have an even stronger importance when we remember that there is someone else standing alongside us to sing this psalm. Here's what I mean. If we were to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, we would read words from Psalm 22 
given to us as the words of the very Son of God. Here are those words. This is, this is Jesus who says these words. He says to the Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, when did Jesus do that? Well, I think he did that every time he gathered with the people of God in his earthly existence, when he went to the synagogue, for example, and sang biblical psalms. You see it, for example, at the Last Supper. They, Jesus and his disciples were singing the psalms together. And I think that is crucial for our understanding of all the psalms. What did it mean for Jesus to sing this psalm? What difference does it make to think of this psalm as an expression of my Savior's praise? So much we could say about that just here in Psalm 108. But just look at verse 3. Jesus says there, as the psalmist says, I will sing praises to you among the nations. Now, in his earthly ministry, Jesus only sang these praises among his fellow Jews, not among the nations. But here he is proclaiming his intention that there will come a time when he will sing the praise, the praise that his father deserves in the company of, the, of all the nations of the world. This is a messianic psalm in that sense with a missionary purpose. And I think that gives an added significance to our understanding of the great work of world missions, which you as a congregation have been thinking about the last several weeks through the missions conference. We support the global proclamation of the gospel for the sake of the nation so that they will be gathered to praise God. But we also do it for Jesus' sake because his heart's desire is to offer praise to his father among the peoples of the nations, which he cannot fully do unless we too participate in that global work of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, I think, makes this explicit in Romans 15. There he says that Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul's talking about the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he starts quoting from the Psalms, and it's very similar to Hebrews and Psalm 22. It's just Romans 15 and Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The apostle is talking about his own praise. He's talking about David's praise. He's talking about our praise, but he is also talking about the praise of Jesus Christ, celebrating the Father's steadfast love over earth and sky in the gathering of the nations. So much for the praise part of this psalm. But now there's a petition here, and there's a lot of struggle in the end part of this psalm. Verse 6, I think, marks that transition from praise to petition, remember, this is a warrior psalm, first written and later compiled by someone who had some very significant prayer needs, as you maybe do this morning. Maybe something you've already been in prayer about today, something that's been a heavy burden in the past week, maybe a burden that you don't know about yet that's coming. And so this psalmist, with his prayer needs, prayed... In order that your beloved ones may be delivered, Lord, give salvation by your right hand. And now you can sense the intensity of the prayer and answer me. 
Not sure I've ever prayed that quite that way. Answer me, Lord. But there's an intensity about this prayer, an urgency about it, because at the time he wrote this, King David, first of all, his people were not yet saved. That's evident from the wording, that your people may be delivered. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet. So, the, so David is pleading for a deliverance that has not yet come. But as we read through the psalm, we have this strong sense that his prayers will be answered, that his faith will gain the victory. And it, it's so much because of God's unfailing love. The love mentioned in verse 4, the love he mentions again here. I think when you stand on the ground of the promises of God and specifically his steadfast love, you are in a strong place to make your petition. Lord, I appeal to you on the basis of your love to act in this situation, to deliver, to save, to rescue. That's what David does here. He asks on the basis of God's love for his work among his whole beloved nation. I think this is something good to remember Anytime we are in serious need, which by the way is actually all the time, if we recognize it, maybe most of all when we are praying for our sins to be forgiven, but not only then, we pray for deliverance from persecution perhaps, rescue from financial debt, from some form of spiritual poverty, some soul-destroying bitterness or sin, We bring that request to the Lord and we ask him to answer our prayer because of his great love for us. His divine affection is the assurance of his desire to do what absolutely is best for us. And so even the most desperate petitions, and I think David's giving us a great example of that here, even those desperate ones should be full of faith in our loving God. Now, when David, first of all, offered this prayer... First thing in the morning, he had a long list of enemies. That's evident from the specific references. He says in verse 7, God is promised in his holiness. And then he goes on to say what it is that God has promised. And he mentions here promises that God has made about some of these very specific geographic territories. And probably most of us don't know this geography too well Maybe if we looked in the back of the Bible at the map, we might be able to piece it together. But let me help us a little bit. Shechem and Sukkot are both cities associated with the life of Jacob. And interestingly, they're on both sides of the Jordan River. And that proves to be the case with all of these territories. The Jordan River cut right down the middle of Israel. Tribe of Manasseh, interestingly, overlapped the river close to Gilead on one side, close to Ephraim on the other. And even these enemies are on both sides of the Jordan River. And I think what the psalmist is doing here is saying God is sovereign over all of this. All all of this territory, anywhere you go in Israel, God is sovereign over this. He is ruling over this nation and over the other nations that are close by. And even if, as from time to time happened, one of these places or another falls into enemy hands, eventually it will be restored to its rightful owner. He would claim them as the spoils of battle. I think one of the ways we can apply this part of the passage is just to realize all the things that seem like defeats for the people of God, all of the places in society, maybe even in our own lives, where it seems like Satan is winning, 
this part of society or in other things that ought to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I mean, the arts, media, education, politics, all of that ought to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And part of the psalmist's point is that in time, all of it will be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's still in control and, and his victory one day will be complete. You get such a strong sense of that here in the um, personal possessive words that are used here. There's a lot of my and mine in these verses. It's whole nations, kingdoms of people. And the Lord just looks down the line. He says, yeah, that's mine. That also is mine. This belongs to me. And even when the nations are struggling for supremacy, God is absolutely dominant over it. It's clear from some of the images here. Let's take Moab, for, for instance. Moab, an enemy tribe of the people of God. What is God's relationship to Moab or Moab's relationship to God? It's God's wash basin. He's just going to wash his hands there. That's how underneath his authority it is. Or what about this expression here, upon Edom I cast my shoe in the ancient world, a severe insult. Uh, if you know your history books or have a really good memory, you'll know that President George Bush was, uh, was sub, uh, subjected to this insult at a, a press conference in 2008 in Baghdad, and there was a journalist there who threw his shoes in protest against George Bush, and it was, we won't get into the politics of all of that. The point is, it was an insult. It was an insult that goes all the way back to biblical times. It was God's way here of claiming his authority. And I think the exiles who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem would have found these verses so relevant to their own struggles. It was relevant to David because these were some of his enemies and the same enemies were the enemies of the people of God when they were trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist reminded the Israelites and reminds us of God's sovereign authority and his loving affection and his promised protection. No earthly power is able to withstand God's will. And think of anything that seems opposed to God in the world today. Communism, which is holding some of our own missionaries under its thumb, that's God's wash basin. He's in, char he's in control of that. That'll be evident by the end of history. What about the struggles we have in our own society? Struggles against racism, struggles against abortion. God casts his shoe at those things. He's, he's in charge of those things. But Judah, and this is why he's in charge of all the other things, Judah is God's scepter. That's the promise. In, uh, that's the claim that is made at the end of verse 8. It's a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 49, Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, is blessing his son, saying this about this one, that about the other one, and about Judah, he says, now that's the scepter, that's the ruling tribe, that's the one that will rule. And that, of course, that promise was fulfilled in David, who came out of the tribe of Judah, and more so, and fully and completely and finally in Jesus Christ, when he became the king. And when we as followers of Christ read Psalm 108 and are reminded, Judah is God's scepter. That is pointing us to Jesus Christ. It's reminding us in all the struggles we face today, tomorrow, 
Even before you wake up tomorrow, those challenges will be there. The world, the flesh, the devil. He will give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the psalmist, I think, believed all of that, and hopefully you believe all of that too. But it doesn't mean there weren't moments when he struggled to believe that. Such an interesting verse here. In, uh, in verse 10, what we see in verses 10 to 12, he asks a question, okay, who's going to lead me to the fortified city? Who will lead me specifically to Edom? And what it means is that all the enemies aren't yet conquered. David's still in that in-between place. He's got the promise of victory. He sees God's work in the world, but, but there's still this really big enemy. And humanly speaking, David has this fear that God won't go with him into the next battle. Have you ever had a fear like that? You know God has promised to be with you, but you're really having trouble believing it for this, at this time. And David puts his doubts into words here. I mean, Lord, honestly, isn't it true? You've rejected us because we've had this defeat. And that's true. People of God had defeats at times. And then he doesn't just ask it as a question. He's getting a little bolder in his prayer. He just puts it out there. Almost as an accusation, you don't go out, God, with our, our armies. You get the sense that maybe Israel had been on a bit of a losing streak. Maybe not surprising when you remember all of David's ups and downs. Remember how rejected many, many Israelites felt after 70 years in exile? I was talking to a friend from this church after the early service, asking her how things were going. She said, ups and downs. Probably there are a lot of people here this morning that have downs as well as the ups. And it had the psalmist wondering, even, even though he's been up before, since before dawn praising God, if God really was going to come through for him. And I think so many of us can relate to these struggles. We actually know what it's like to be up before dawn feeling all the pressure, knowing from our first waking moment that the new day is going to be a huge Challenge. There's an unresolved conflict at home. There's a difficult conversation at work. There's somebody in your life with mental, spiritual, physical needs who needs more from you than you feel you have the compassion to give. And those are battles you fought before. And you've won some of those battles. But you're still wondering if you can get up and fight that battle again. This day, it's going to take all of the faith that you can muster. And sometimes it's tempting to feel that things haven't really been going all that well for you lately, and it's making you wonder whether God really notices, cares. David went through all of that. The psalmist who put these two psalms together went through all of that and was facing this very formidable foe, the fortified city of the Edomites. If we were in a classroom, I would give you a chance to impress the whole class if you could tell me what that fortified city of the Edomites is. It's Petra. You've seen it if you've seen Indiana Jones. You, you know there is only one narrow passageway through a long gorge. There's really not much more than one, one or two soldiers can ride through. It's easy to defend because you can just cut them off at that pass. That's the city that David needed to conquer. And the point is that we all face huge challenges from time to time that seem far beyond anything that we could ever defeat. 
And when you're in the fight of your life, Psalm 108 is ready there, is ready to help you. It's showing you how to praise God from the beginning. It's showing you how to praise God even when you have some doubts. It's reminding you of God's promises. It's giving you a prayer to use that is as heartfelt as the praise is at the beginning of the psalm. Oh, grant us help against the foe. Psalm 108, verse 12. Maybe one to mark in your Bible. Maybe one to put by your mirror in this season of life. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. It's a prayer to use when all other hopes have failed. People have let you down. You've lost any confidence in any merely human solution. The only help you have, and you know it, is the God who rules over the nations. We pray this psalm, and we're in a place to prevail personally, but also communally. David's not just praying for himself here. This is a prayer, prayer we can use in the big spiritual battles of our times, in the war for souls, a prayer to use for the success of the gospel, in the battle for the unborn, a prayer for a culture of life to triumph over a culture of death, against pornography to pray for purity, against racism to pray for reconciliation, against violence to pray for healing. This is a strong prayer to use against the greatest enemies of the people of God. And we pray this with such strong confidence in victory. That's the place David ends in verse 13. I love every word of his confidence in verse 13. With God. That makes all the difference. With God, we shall do valiantly. There's a part for us to play. We're not just sitting back and waiting for God to do something. We're trusting him to do something. We're also doing the things that he's given us a responsibility to do. With God, we shall do valiantly. And when that valiant triumph is won, we we won't think of any credit for ourselves. It's he who will tread down our foes. By the time he had finished this song, this psalmist, he was ready for that day, for every day. We sing Psalm 108 today. We are ready too. We do it in the strong name of a Savior who has tread down that old wily serpent, Satan, triumphing over him on the cross and defeating all of our sins. Pray this song in Jesus' name any day, whether you're a morning person or not, and you will do valiantly with a steadfast heart. Father, we give you praise for the strong confidence in the face of any danger that the psalmist had. Lord, we give you praise that even when it's hard for us to find the right words on our own, you give us the words, words of praise, words of petition, words of confident assurance with the psalmist. We pray today that by your grace, we will do valiantly in Jesus' name. Amen.